Hey, this is Rena Martine, women's intimacy coach. If you want to leverage your message to gain deeper influence and build a lasting legacy, you should be listening to Stories That Sell with my friend and colleague, Scott Ramage. You have the knowledge, the experience, and the talent needed to succeed. But in the day and age we live in, skill is not enough. Your story is the most powerful tool in your arsenal. This show will help you tap into that resource and learn how to leverage your message to gain deeper influence and build a lasting legacy. Tune in each week as thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and authors share how they built empires on the backs of their story. You're listening to Stories That Sell with your host, Scott Ramage. Hey, everybody, on this episode of Stories That Sell, we have Rena Martin. Rena has spent 14 years as a deputy district attorney for LA County's DA's office, where she spent a majority of her time uh, prosecuting cases of sexual assault, domestic violence, and child abuse. She continues to serve women today in a totally different facet. I'm really excited to get into that, but we will in a moment. But welcome to the show, Rena. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, this is this is a really great way to open this up because uh, I mean you you've been an attorney how how long you were you an attorney for you know the deputy district attorney for LA from like the beginning of your career? Yeah, um, I joined the DA's office as an attorney at the age of twenty five. Wow. I was the youngest DA in LA County when I joined the office. And um, I, I did that. That was um, my career, my really my only career as an adult and one that I thought I was going to be in forever. I thought it was going to be my, my longest long-term relationship I would ever be in. And then things changed. And now I'm doing something completely different. Yeah. So this is great because this is a, there's a story in this, I'm sure. And I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of unwrapping that. But when you were young, did you like see yourself as an attorney from very early on? No, it's wild. Actually, I went to college thinking I was going to be a music journalist because <laughs> oh, wow. I loved music. I mean, my, my parents would joke like, Rena, what are you going to do when you grow up? Be a professional groupie because I was always going to concerts and writing my zines and uh, had a music column in the high school paper. So that was really what I saw myself doing because I love to write as well. Um, and then my first year of college, I took an elective class that was a criminology class and I was hooked and I could not get enough of this stuff. And, um, at that point, you know, once I started taking more of those classes, I changed my major and I, I came to a point where I had to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to go down the law enforcement route, become a police officer? I come from a law enforcement family. But I knew that wasn't really me. And did I want to go the other route, which would be, okay, get a master's degree, get a PhD, become an academic and teach this. And that didn't necessarily sit well with me either because I wanted to make a positive change in people's lives and not just be sitting behind a stack of books. So I thought, well, what could I do that somewhere in the middle of those two? And becoming a prosecutor was that for me. And um, so it wasn't that I wanted to be a lawyer. It was that I wanted to be a DA. I wanted to be a DA in LA County, which is one of the most competitive offices to join. And um, 
law, law school was what I needed to do in order to, um, to get to that. And so I was fortunate enough to get into a great law school. And then from there, I um, volunteered a lot with the DA's office and then was fortunate enough to land my dream job at 25. That's really crazy. I mean, even in starting at 25 and having that shift in college, because I think so many people that become attorneys, lawyers, whatever you want to, whatever term you want to use. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Start. I, it seems to me they have this vision from pretty early on and you're mm-hmm. just totally not that at all. <laughs> totally not that. And it's funny because I was still involved in the music scene throughout law school and after I joined the DA's office too, um, I used to DJ a lot. So it was like, I'm a DA and a DJ, which uh, at the time was kind of funny. Um, I've gone into retirement when it comes to spinning vinyl, but, um, but yeah, I still found a way to embrace both sides of me at that time. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing. I mean, is you've been around a lot of lawyers or you went through training and you worked with them is having an artistic side normal for an attorney or is that it's just for me it seems a little bit outside of the norm yeah i was definitely a black sheep within the da's <laughs> office <laughs> yeah not not the norm not to bash on da's and say none of them are creative um but i was definitely in the minority when yeah. it came to that yeah it's a very unique story in that you you know you music and writing about music and and being a dj and coming into this and come coming into this p- profession of an attorney but then this changes so i want to hear the story because i you know we we haven't told our guests yet what you do but i want to hear the story of how you we heard a little bit of how you got into being you know um prosecutor but let's let's hear the whole thing like really kind of lay this out for us all right let's let's do it so Joined the DA's office and my dream when I joined the office was to prosecute sex crimes. Um, I'm a survivor of both childhood and adolescent sexual assault. And I wanted to help people. I wanted to put the bad guys away, of course, but I really wanted to um, help survivors. And so I was fortunate enough to spend about 10 years of my career doing that. And um, the breaking point for me was, was seeing that juries would do weird things for lack of a better term. And I could work as hard as I wanted to and have these victims really, survivors really trust me. And then that would just crumble and fall apart because of the system. And um, the last strange verdict I got, I was devastated. And I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this for me, right? Um, So I transitioned out of doing those types of cases, uh, prosecuting sex crimes cases, and um, started doing something else within the DA's office. I I bounced around to a few different units. I was prosecuting law enforcement for a period of time. Um, I was working in our habeas division for a period of time. And I I ran the Central Arraignment Court, which is the busiest court in North America as the assigned DA for a few years. So I was doing a lot of things, but it got to the point where I fell out of love with the job. It was just a paycheck and a very stable and good paycheck at that with a lot of great benefits and long-term stability. But um, my plan was to just ride it out until I could retire and then have a secondary career after that. I knew I wanted to help people. 
Um, I thought that maybe I would become a therapist. I was looking into options to, to get my licensure to do that while still working at the DA's office, thinking I could just transition into therapy. And then the pandemic hit. Oh yeah. And I got to the point where I had baked all the bread. <laughs> I had done all the crafts. I had watched all the TV and we didn't know at that time how long this was going to last. And I'm sure like many people, it gave me a pause to take inventory of my life and say, okay, do I want to ride this out for another 12 years? What is the meaning of this? And how can I find meaning? And I thought, okay, well, why don't I get a coaching certification and see whether I like working with people individually before I go into more student loan debt to become a therapist? Let me just dip my toe in and see what this is about. And I knew that I wanted to work with women in the intimacy space, um, partly because that's always been my mission is to help survivors, but really it's my own story too. Um, in the last five years or so, I went through my own journey of conquering my own sexual shame, mm -hmm. working alongside a therapist, reading all the books, listening to all the podcasts, trying to figure this out on my own and um, realizing that what I wanted in my romantic life didn't fit neatly within the box that society prescribes for us. And um, so I wanted to help women figure that out for themselves too, to tap into their core desires so that they could experience deep intimacy with their partner. Because having done the work, I'm now in the most fulfilling, loving, wonderful relationship I've ever been in. And it took me years to get here. And I thought, what if I could give women a fast track to that, mm -hmm. right? So that what would I have needed at the beginning of my journey so that it wouldn't have taken years? So I started working with women and within a very short period of time, it became wildly apparent that there is a need for this. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen is that a lot of coaches within the female empowerment or specifically the sexuality space are coming, coming from a more spiritual based approach, which I am not judging whatsoever. That's just not who I am. It's the lawyer in me, right? I'm, I want the evidence. I want the facts. I want the numbers. I want the data. I want to know why I'm using these techniques with women, why they work. So that really sets me apart. And within a matter of under a year now, I was able to build a thriving coaching business, helping women love their bodies, experience deep intimacy and have great sex, shame-free. Um, so I was trying to do both at the same time. And, you know, the girl, this girl needs to sleep too. So <laughs> um, one of my business coaches said to me like, Rena, how could you not quit your job at this point? How could you not leave the DA's office? What more proof do you need that this is viable? And so I did the scariest thing I've ever done in my entire life and um, left the most stable, prestigious career imaginable, uh, imaginable. And um, I did not think I was an entrepreneur. You have to understand, I was on a steady paycheck my whole life. I never had to think about buying medical insurance and all of these things. And for me to go from that to, um, to what I'm doing today has been such a profound learning experience. Scariest thing I have ever done. And I've done a lot of scary things, Scott, but um, it's beautiful. 
And I am so grateful um, that I'm able to do this full time now and help women. I think the, the, I want to rewind and, and cover some stuff that you kind of just gl- you sped over, but I, yeah. I, the, the fear, the fact that you just went for it and severed that tie and moved in and never thought of yourself as an entrepreneur. Cause that's a question I ask a lot. Did you always see yourself as an entrepreneur? And it's very interesting. The answers you fell into it, but, but, um, yeah, but through work, obviously. right. Right. <laughs> but a lot of work and you had to step out, but I just, I, I have to do this side note. This is what I absolutely love about the pandemic. Pandemic's been horrible for many, many, many people. It's been, but, but there have been these people who have completely rewritten their story and have found a whole new thing and a whole new meaning in their life. And they've stepped out and done some pretty incredible things. So first of all, uh, kudos to you because that's big. And I'm sure because very different, but I taught for 13 years as an educator. And when I left that, because I was doing better in something else and had more passion, very similar type of story. I had people literally telling me I was an idiot. I was, I was leaving a stable paycheck. You have zero idea what you're doing with your pension. You know, this is just, this is the most ridiculous thing. I'm embarrassed to know you like literally heart dagger and heart type of things happening over and over again. Did you in, in, get some of that feedback as well? Or how was this received by your coworkers? Well, it's interesting because at the same time that this was all going on, um, a new DA was elected in LA. So a little political thing going on in the side too. um, That has really shaken up the morale within the DA's office. And I don't want to get too far off topic here, but the overwhelming majority of folks were like, Rena, I'm so envious that you have something else to go to because a lot of people were like, I don't even know why I'm here, but I can't leave. I don't have anywhere else to go. And oh my gosh, I'm so envious of the fact that you've got something. So those are the people who I know who are friends of mine within the DA's office, but I certainly got um, some of the not to generalize, but older white men within the DA's office saying something like, wow, that's, um, that's really brave of you to do. And almost like, what has she lost her marbles? Like she's going to go out and make money talking to women about sex. And, um, yes. (laughs) And the, the joke is kind of on everyone because I, already for this calendar year have out earned what I made as a DA last wow. year. That's incredible. Yeah. So uh, not that I was banking on that. Um, I wasn't in this for the money, but I, I was just like, if I can cover my expenses and my overhead and not starve to death and have to move back into my parents' house, like that's a win for me. And so I couldn't have anticipated how successful um, this would have been in such a short period of time, which excites me because it it shows that the world is ready for this and women are ready for a change. So I'm feeling a a need there, but yeah, certainly Scott, people thinking I'm crazy to, to leave a job like this. If that change in administration hadn't happened at the DA's office, yes, I'm sure even people close to me would have thought I was absolutely nuts for doing this. Let's yeah, that, that, that also obviously helps, which is interesting side of the story. Let's rewind if you will. And, um, you know, if something's off limits, that's fine. But you, you alluded to being a childhood survivor of, uh, you know, us. Sexual assault. 
Yeah, there you go. Sexual assault. Uh, was this early, early in your life? And then like, how did that frame you moving forward? What was the process? Uh, I know that's a huge question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the childhood sexual abuse happened when I was very, very, very young, like around three years old. That does not make it any smaller of a problem. Oh no, not at all. And here's the thing. My, my teenage sexual assault, I was very vocal about that when it happened. I took that in my own hands. I got myself therapy. Um, but my childhood assault, I had never told a single person about. And my, um, my therapist was the first person I'd ever told about that. I was like, well, by the way, this thing happened. And, um, and so I don't know that it consciously framed what I decided to do, but you know how powerful the subconscious is, right. And our memories. And this is something that it, it wasn't a repressed memory. It's been with me my whole life. I just could not speak of it. Um, and so it's hard for me to answer that question, how it's framed things, because I think it wasn't something I even spoke about until about five years ago. Wow. Yeah. But the fact that you kind of t- took on your teenage assault situation head on um, says a lot about your personality, which is, is really cool. Um, so now you are working with women, dealing with what sexual identity, what's the biggest problem? Oh my gosh. It's so tricky to say because women come to me for, for a lot of different reasons, but at the core of all of it is shame. So my, my coaching program, the signature program that I've developed is called shameless Mm -hmm. for that reason, because we used to throw around that term, uh, kind of pejoratively like, Oh my God, she's so shameless. It's like, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being shameless and being shame free. So Ultimately, whether you are a married woman coming to me because the spark has been uh, lost in your relationship, or you're a survivor of sexual assault who gets triggered just by somebody touching you, really at the core of this is shame. Mm. And it's, I don't deserve pleasure. I am broken. Um, I don't deserve to advocate for my needs. My kids' needs are more important. My, Ooh, my- that's a big one. That's right. One. Yes. And so it all comes down to shame, but that shame looks different for every woman because every woman is unique, but it's going through and really starting, um, from the inside out because the most interesting thing has happened that I will have women coming to me for sexual shame. And then during the course of our work together, they will make these radical life shifts that have nothing to do with things that happen in the bedroom. Um, huge career shifts, leaving jobs that no longer serve them, repairing um, fractures within their family of origin. And what I've found is that if you can heal that, the intimacy, which for women and perhaps for men too, is that most shameful secret part of you. If you can go in and work on that, which is the hardest thing to heal, then it spills over into everything. So I say, heal your intimacy, heal your life. Really. If you can feel empowered in the bedroom and the space that it's the hardest for you to feel empowered in, then nothing can stop you when it comes to every other facet of your life. Well, I was just kind of thinking and this, this, a few thoughts hit me is it really isn't about sexual intimacy. It, that is more of a, 
uh, <laughs> it's a side thing. It's, it's a thing that's affected, but you, you've really nailed it. There's so many other things that are unwrapped. You know, we, we go back and the first thing that came to my mind when you started talking about shame was certain, and this is just embedded in American culture. This is not, I'm very religious, not religious. I, I'm, I have a very strong faith. But even in the church, in multiple church churches, they were so against, they, they wanted so badly to have people save uh, sex for marriage, which for me, that's great. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I've been married for 25 years. I'm, I'm madly in love with my bride, but, but they made it so shameful. They, they, they took this label and they said, sex is bad. It's really, really bad. Is that a lot of what you're kind of dealing with outside? Yeah. Yeah. I would say about mm, a third of the women who come to me were, were raised in um, some sort of religiously sex negative um, environment growing up. Yeah. And I, I mean, my wife and I have very strategically reframed that conversation with our boys. It's like, no, (laughs) this is not bad. And it's flipping amazing. Like this is an amazing part of life. And I think that's a really important thing, but now we're, we're kind of dealing with this, this sweeping thing. And I don't think it's gone away. I think it's very, it's still rampant in a lot of different sex, a lot of different sex with the T on the end. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) S-E-C-T-S. Um, so it's just really interesting, but I can I can't even imagine the need out there to to really kind of look back and fix some of those things that have really repressed um, a lot of people in so many ways. And you said it; you're like they're they're seeing uh, transformation in work, in their home, in in their friendships. Like that's incredible. Yeah, Were you it's, surprised by that. I was. Mm-hmm. I was. Um, and I went in thinking, we're going to unlock your core desires. We're going to figure out what you want in the bedroom. And then as I started doing this, I realized how far beyond the bedroom, all of this spills. And so, yes, um, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't surprised by this because really there are a lot of self-identified female empowerment coaches out there. And in essence, that is who I am and what I do, but I use the bedroom as the entry point to do it. But um, I wouldn't have called myself a women's empowerment coach at the beginning, but it became wildly apparent to me that that is in fact what I do. So it's a very transformational process that people go through on so many levels. So let's, let's talk about emotional intimacy and the role that it plays in women's lives. And I, you know, maybe speak to men listening, uh, how, how important that is and what you've learned about that, that end of the spectrum. Right. So let's, we'll talk about kind of the pyramids. So if you want to have intimacy, uh, you need to be vulnerable. And that's kind of where people struggle because if you have shame, which is at the bottom here of this triangle, you can't be vulnerable. If you can't be vulnerable, you can't be intimate. So it always comes back to the shame. But emotional intimacy is, and it doesn't even have to be romantic. It can be how you show up with your colleagues, with your friends, um, and of course your your lovers or your partner. But um, it's this idea of showing up as all of you, as taking off the mask. So I think men and women, when we're out in the wild, you know, meeting people at bars or we're on apps and 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 we're dating we have a tendency to wear these masks and to play these roles. And what the new science is showing is that 
neither men nor women are comfortable playing these roles. We don't want to do it anymore. And I'll tell you, I call myself a reformed cool girl because (laughs) I knew all the tricks in the book as far as dating and all the things. And um, I was the person who my friends would come to and say, okay, Rena, what should I text back? And right. And, And it was a game. And I realized I was just playing a game. And I think so many people are playing a game and whether that's men feeling like they have to be the pursuer, they have to string women along, or you can't text back right away. And, and all of that, um, emotional intimacy is just showing up and having those hard conversations, having the courage to have those hard conversations and take off that mask and stop playing the game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, I've been married for 25 years, so I've had a lot of practice, but it wasn't until I, as a man really, and, and I would say even for my wife speaking on her behalf, which is not safe, but (laughs) I'll speak about, she won't listen to this. (laughs) I'll speak about me is years and years to pull back the, this is how I should appear even with my, the, the most intimate person in my life. And when when I got to the point where it was like, you know what, this is not doing anybody justice, not by sharing the most in-depth thoughts, feelings, no matter how weird or different or vulnerable they made me feel. It was so incredibly important to make that shift. And when I made that shift, I did not think our marriage is so incredibly great. And it has been for years. I did not think that, like, how could it get much better? That's how. I mean, that is like next level relationship stuff. And I I think that's a a societal thing men and women really need to put down and learn. So that's incredible that you're doing that. Yeah, it's good stuff. And here's the thing, you know, Brene Brown, she is the world's expert on shame and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And she says, it's not a matter of if you're going to get hurt. It's yes, you're going to get hurt once you learn to take down some of those walls, to take off the mask, to stop playing the game, you will get hurt but your capacity for joy is so worth it. Yeah. The capacity for that connection. Right. Um, And so kudos to you for doing the work, Scott, and saying, I I don't want to keep playing this game. I don't want to fit in this mold that society or maybe religion or that, that it has created for me. I want something more than this because what I had found historically was you get into a relationship and you fall in love and then it's kind of all downhill from there. Things get stale, things get stagnant. And I was just in this revolving door. And now I can confidently say there is another way. I feel like things only get better in my relationship now. And and I hear you saying the same thing that it's almost like the 2.0 of your marriage. Mm And, and that there is another way to do this to where you can have a different level of in- excitement with your partner as you get to know them better. Um, and, you know, I could talk about this for an entire day, but that there, this idea that we've been told like, oh, well, get married or you have kids, it's all downhill from here. Sex goes out the window. I mean, that's a narrative that we have been fed, but it's not true. It's not true. It's just that no one's teaching us how to do the damn thing. Right. They're not teaching us how to keep passion alive within our relationship. And so what I see is that sex becomes a to-do list item. And I say, you can enjoy sex if you view it as a chore. 
And we need to reframe just how we view intimacy, romance, and sexuality, that this is an escape from our to-do list. This is a place of fun. This is a place of play. This isn't grocery shopping. This is a decadent dessert, right? <laughs> That's good, yeah. So just changing yeah. the mindset around what it means to be intimate, um, not as, oh gosh, I guess, I guess we better talk about the fact that we're not having sex. Like, oh my gosh, we're not having sex. I'm missing out on one of life's greatest joys that's absolutely free. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm impressed that you're doing this work because it's empowering people to really move to the next level in all areas of their life. And that's just phenomenal. Yeah, <laughs> I know these conversations are hard, which is why, um, you know, just having them and it is important because it signals to people, this doesn't have to be the taboo thing that we talk about. We can talk about this the same way that we would talk about eating healthy food to make you feel better, right? What's the difference here? Yeah. It's that there is this puritanical, um, this puritanical mindset that comes into sex that says sex is dirty, sex is, sex is bad, or sex can only be reserved for a man and a woman who are married or self-pleasure is wrong. And I'm here to change that narrative um, and just talk about the data and the research here. Not, you know, according to Rena, I always say, not according to Rena, according to people much smarter than Rena. And I'm just here to synthesize that down and share it as loudly as I can to as many people as I can. Yeah, so this is a good time because I think that it's very obvious that a lot of people need help in this area. So let's let's transition a little bit and let's talk about Rena now as not a lawyer, <laughs> not a steady paycheck earner. Well, I mean, it's just gotten better, but uh, entrepreneur the entrepreneurial journey is difficult. So let's just look at what you do to make sure things are right in your world and you're functioning at the highest level you can. So let's talk about let's let's talk about some tips and tricks for success from the mouth of a lawyer turned um, coach. Yeah. Um, so as far as, as far as day-to-day -day practices go, I have my mindset practice that I do every morning. So I do some fear journaling. Um, I write down three things that I am grateful for. And the magic is the word because, because uh, many of us will say, okay, I'm grateful for my job, my kids, my wife. And if we say I'm grateful for my job, because right? I'm grateful for my wife because that's really where I think your gratitude practice can be transformed. So I do my fear journaling, which is essentially, I write out everything that I'm scared of or worried about today. I want to talk about that. I want to, yeah. I want to sit in that one for a minute because yeah. I just started this two weeks ago. Oh, uh, fantastic. So I've never heard about it. And it was a little bit of a, a brain bump for me because I'm like, I'm acknowledging fears. This is really interesting because I do a very a, a very long gratitude practice every single day. I have a, I have a very set thing that I do, but fear journaling is new. And I'm always trying to like see and kind of what, what is going to really move my, the needle in my day further. So this is what I'm stepping into. It's very interesting. Why? Tell us why you do for fear, fear journaling. Okay. So a few different reasons. One, I like to think of it as an emotional colonic, <laughs> not to be crass with the analogy, but it's the best one I've, I've been able to come up with. I'm taking all the crap that's floating around in my head and I'm letting it live somewhere else. So I'm creating a space, emptying some stuff out 
and then filling it with gratitudes. And then I do five brags. I'm proud of myself for X because Y. And so I'm, I'm replenishing and replacing that um, empty space that I've created by putting all my fears somewhere. So that's one reason. Um, Two is that we have this idea that we can think our way out of our worries and our fears and we can't. And the more we try to, the more they consume us. So if we, I like to think of my fears and my worries as a child throwing a tantrum. So I'm like, okay, throw your tantrum and it throws its tantrum on the page. Like, okay, you got any more? So the fear could be, um, oh gosh, I'm never going to get another client ever again. I'm like, okay, so, so then what? So then um, I'm going to blow through all the savings I have. I'm going to have to um, cash out my pension and, and my retirement. Okay, and then what, Rena? Well, and then, I don't know, maybe I'll have to be a lawyer again. <laughs> I mean, right? And it's like, it just okay, makes them silly, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. So I found that if you let it go to usually the things that we end up at are, and then I'm going to die alone, right? Or, and then I'm going to be destitute on the streets. So those are kind of the big existential ones. But normally, if you let your fear go to its natural conclusion, you find one of two things that that natural conclusion, either one, isn't as bad as you think it is. Or two is so unlikely to happen that you can see how silly it is, right? Um, so, okay, I say if it's very unlikely to happen, okay, on a scale of one to 10, how likely is it that this is going to happen, Rena? How likely is it that you are going to have to move back in with your parents because you fell flat on your face? I'm like, mm, I'd say that's about a one, mm-hmm. right? And then I realize how air quotes ridiculous I'm being about it. But So that's another reason why the fear journaling is um, incredibly powerful. And when I find myself writing down the same thing day after day, I almost get tired of my own bullshit. Pardon my French. But I'm like, oh, Rena, you're on that one again? Really? And I get bored enough with it that it loses its power over me. Mm -hmm. If there's the same worry I'm seeing coming up over and over again, I get bored and then it, it pushes me into action. So hopefully that, that answers some of your questions. I'm a huge fan of the fear journaling, but I can see where that resistance is. Cause you're like, well, I don't want to sit and spend so much time ruminating on all the bad stuff. And it's like the bad stuff's going to be there kicking around anyway. You might as well do something constructive with it. Yeah. My experience. And this is, this is really good. I really like that explanation. It really makes a lot of sense. And I actually need to take mine a step further so that I, I ride that out and see, because what I I started doing, and I don't recall where I got this, it was a little before I really started fear journaling, is I started saying a statement, because I have affirmations and mm-hmm. things I do every single morning, and I added, I feel unrest when, and I for that day, I'm like, what is causing me un- unrest? What caused me unrest yesterday? And I, I just filled it in in my head. What happened over time? Dramatic dramatic decrease in stress around that thing that had been consuming me for years, like dramatic. Then I'm like, oh, writing it down. So now every single day I force myself to write that thing down. And then I think it was in a group that we were in. They said, and actually feel it. That's, that's a very interesting process, but I love how you walked that out all the way to the, what, what, then what, and then what, and what I've noticed is I'm almost not embarrassed to write them down, but it's just silly because I'm like, this is the stupidest thing ever. Why am I 
Why is this even consuming any space in my head? It makes no sense at all. And I well, think here is. There, there is a reason. There is an evolutionary reason for that because um, I think it's that we're five times more likely to remember a negative event than a positive one. It's because it makes more sense that our brain would hold on to the bad experiences because it's more useful for us to remember the lion that was charging at us than to remember the pretty flower on the side of the mountain, right? Yeah. So there is a reason for it. It's not stupid. It's it's because of our preservation. <laughs> right. It's because of the old version of us way back when who needed to, to ruminate over the bad, scary things because that's what we needed to do to keep us alive. So we don't want to judge. We don't want to get angry or frustrated with it. We want to say, okay, I see what you're doing here, but this is a stick. This is not a snake, mm -hmm. right? And, and really make peace with how our brains work because they're doing what they're designed to do. So we, we can work with them that we can make them our friends instead of our enemies. And that's the power of what you said is you do gratitude and then the three things you did well, or, or how did you phrase that? Okay. So I do my fear journaling. Mm -hmm. um, I used to set a timer and do it for five minutes. And now I don't do that. Cause I realized that the timer, me wondering when the timer was going to go off was actually making me anxious. So right. now I just do it until it feels complete. Yep. I do my three gratitudes with, because I do five brags. I'm proud of myself for X because Y, and then I do my affirmation and I do my visualization. Yep. And that's my, um, that's my mindset practice as far as what gets my day started. And, um, I do it as soon as I pop out of bed. So before I've looked at my phone, before I've opened my emails, um, because I used to not, and it, that has been a game changer for me. Absolutely. I, I preach that from the mountaintops, like don't get into that phone. I do it by my value ladder as well. What's the first thing on my list of values than this? And Hey, look, the phone and work is down below all this other stuff. Yeah. It's because you can't effectively do the things and, and right. be a great business owner if you aren't doing your own work. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a really, I really like that routine. I'm, I'm always looking for ways to tweak mine. I've been so ingrained in it for years and now I'm like, Hey, you know what? I can just keep adding little things. I might have to take away, but I need to add what's going to serve me more and what's not serving me anymore. So that's really cool. I love that. Um, one thing I do want to bring up because it's a technique that one of my clients developed for herself recently which I love because I teach my clients this mindset practice and she was stuck in this um, kind of fear spiral, judgment spiral of, I can't change. Mm. I'm not capable of change. So she started doing, adding to her mindset practice where she, I think would write down three things every day. Like, I know I'm capable of change because, and so she would find tiny ways in which historically she has been capable of change. And so you can always add things in that are uniquely tailored to you and based on where you're at. I just wanted to throw that little caveat in that this is not set in stone and that you can play around with it too. Yeah. Well, I always tell when people ask me what my morning routine is, by the way, it includes my workouts and, and some other things. So it's like three hours long, like every, <laughs> like it's, it's intense, but I, I start the day, like, man, I could stop now. I've accomplished so much, but, but I always tell people like, I'll share it with you, but it's not yours. Like take what, you know, uh, eat the meat, spit out the bones is kind of the way, you know, mm -hmm. like what, what works for you? What doesn't? And I, I tell them to listen and talk to a lot of people about them and find what works and then not to settle on that as a lifetime, 
you need to change it as you personally change. Because if I were to go back and do what I started two or three years ago, it'd be very, very, very like um, remedial because I was at that point. I was at a remedial point in my life where I just needed work on such basic things because they were overwhelming me. And so um, I, I love that, that change is, is, is good. Yeah. And, and, you know, my partner, he does a lot of the same mindset work as I do, but he also adds a five minute meditation, meditation practice in every morning too. That's not my practice, right. But we're all different and you got to find what works for you. And you being in the fitness space, like, you know, the best kind of workout is the one that you'll actually do. And same, same with mindset work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I talked to someone just recently. They, they were like, I don't care if it's a three minute morning routine, start something because yeah. you just, and what I've always said is you either command your day or your day commands you. And that Ooh. can literally be on a, like a three minute can make a difference in how you're love that. breathing or clearing your mind or affirmations. I mean, I have definitely things I would say would be hierarchy, but um, it's just like, it's kind of stacking habits, right? We need to just start with something. Then we can stack a new one on and a new one. So awesome. Uh, you're obviously tuned into constantly learning. What is your go-to or do you even have a go-to? Are you a podcast listener, book reader, uh, conf- go to conferences? What's their, your main source right now? Oh my gosh. All the things, all the <laughs> things. Um, I read a lot of books. Um, I am part of a network of other therapists and coaches who work in the intimacy space. And so I'm always staying on top of the interviews they're giving with one another, the articles they're putting out. Um, I listen to my favorite podcasts. I love Dan Savage and I've been a religious listener of his weekly podcast and I learned so much. He has great experts on there, but, um, all the things, all the things, because even before I started doing this work, this was the type of stuff that I would consume. Um, obviously I think you and I both went to the same conference recently that was building our own skills, um, as business owners, but but, uh, I was recovering from surgery recently and I was told I needed to stay idle for about a week. And I will tell you, Scott, I learned a lot about myself during that week that there is only so much TV I can watch. Like I started going stir crazy. Um, so I started doing a little bit of work and it made me feel so much better. And just, um, I'm so thirsty for knowledge. So I love reading books. I, I got through about four books during my week of rest and, um, yeah, I don't think I can give you one concise answer to that because I'm always consuming everything. Yeah. I, I like something you just said. You said I got through about four books in my week of rest. And I, I am a true believer that like I, my mind is renewed when I read or listen to a really great podcast or conversation. Like it doesn't have to be tuning out to TV. In fact, I think you repair faster if you actually stimulate your brain. And I, I get more rest from that. So I, I would not unqualify that as rest personally. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, tuning out does not mean, I mean, you don't have to tune out to, to rest. Uh, okay. So just really, where's the easiest place people find you? Instagram, web, Instagram, my website. So my website is my name, renamartine.com. And on Instagram, you can just look up Rena Martine and you'll find me there all sorts of good things. I'm sure all the time coming out there. So that's really where people can plug in and really get the the flavor of what you're doing and what your message is. So that's really great. Um, last question that I ask everybody, if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? 
But it's okay to be different. In fact, it's ideal to be different. That's so good. I have that conversation with my teenage son every day. Because life would be pretty boring if we were all the same. Yeah, that's really good. Rena, thank you so much for spending some time with us, sharing your knowledge. And uh, I know that it probably impacted a lot of people. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Stories That Sell podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, be sure to leave a rating and review and subscribe to hear interviews with incredible guests each and every week.